1: everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, your adventures, books, and conversation from 11,000 feet. And I am one of your hosts, Christopher.
2: And I'm the other one of your hosts, Stacy.
1: Together we make two. And with us today, we are excited in that we have special guest producer Bryce with us. Hey Bryce.
2: Hi Bryce. Hi everybody. Good Thank- morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. It's a beautiful day here at Mammoth Lakes. It certainly is. Yes. And thank you for uh, stepping ably into fill producer Doug's shoes. He's out on vacation and it's nice having you with us this
2: time. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm honored.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, we'll ask you again if you're still honored by the end of this.
2: Yeah. Podcast, but...
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Stace, uh, a big event happened this recently in the Eastern Sierra, yeah. the, the annual event.
2: Yes, Fishmas. Fishmas, fishmas. 2020.
1: <laughs> what is Fishmas?
2: 21. Sorry, 2020. Gosh. <laughs> um, fishmas is the what we affectionately call the opening day of fishing season in the Eastern Sierra. And it's, it's a very big day um, for ev- for ev- all the residents. Um, as- even if you don't like to fish, if you live in the Crowley Lake area like I do... You are welcomed into the fishing season by the shot of a cannon at 5:30 in the morning. <laughs>
1: Whether you want to be or not. Exactly.
2: <laughs> you exactly. Know,
1: it, it does attract people from far and wide. And all week I was driving, you know, I drive north up yep. to Mammoth every day and around the county as well. And I was seeing more and more people towing fishing boats um, the whole week. Just oh, yeah. Parking up there near Crowley and the other lakes, um, ready to hit the water. And then I think on that Saturday, you know, it, it turned out to be kind of a, a bust right? Yes,
2: it was a very, it was a very wintry day. <laughs> and, you know, very, it was very windy, dangerously so. Yeah. And, and cold and snow threatening um, <laughs> all not, day.
1: Not a beautiful sunshiny day for the first day of, of fishing season on the lakes. I, I heard that Crowley Lake had whitecaps and that they had to rescue some stranded Boats.
2: Yes, and, and several several of the lakes um, around the county were shut down to boats. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Twin Lakes up in Bridgeport and Gull Lake uh, in the middle of the county. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the most auspicious way to open the fishing <laughs> season. But you know that's not the first time this has happened. Actually, even though it was windy and cold. I've actually seen it a lot worse than it was.
1: Yeah. Um, and and fishing people are tenacious, right?
2: It did not deter people at all. I mean, (laughs) like, like you were saying the, the, the line that we could see every day of people in their campers, um, try, you know, checking in at the gate at Crowley to go camp on the shore for the opening weekend. I, It was. You would have thought it was seventy degrees degrees and sunny.
1: (laughs) But like a lot of Eastern Sierra storms, this one just blew through, and I think think people were able to get some great fishing in. Right?
2: Oh yeah, people were definitely catching fish. I saw, um, a bunch of fishermen cleaning their fish over by Tom's place on Sunday evening. And the weather did improve and my husband and I were able to get out. Yay. Um, so it was, it was so much fun and it was cold as all get out mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but it was still super, super fun. And, um, yeah. It was definitely slow fishing. We were trolling um, with, ch- mm-hmm. with lures on our, on our rods, which you know, if you're not sure what that term means, you, you throw your line in and you sink your lure really deep. And then you, dr- you run your boat slowly and you hope a fish pops on. And so we had a couple of bites, but we Mm -hmm. did not land any fish in the boat. But that's okay. It was cold, and the fish were sluggish, is what my husband said.
1: (laughs) So you used lures instead of, Mm -hmm. like, I was taught to use salmon eggs. We weren't a fancy family when we were fishing as kids.
2: Well, we use salmon eggs if we're fishing from the shore and, you know, power bait. And I prefer that much more because I always get in trouble using lures. And (laughs) why the other day was no exception. Well, so if we're fishing from the shore and we're using lures, I tend to get them stuck in the weeds. Um, (laughs) And, you know, lures have little hooks on them that are three prongs and, you know, then they're barbed and they just are really tenacious little suckers, you Mm. know, and you want them to be because when the fish bite on them, you want them to be hooked. Right. Um. But in the case of the other day, I had um gloves on mm-hmm. that had some some fuzz to them, mm-hmm. and when I brought every time I'd bring the lure in to the boat, like to check to make sure it was still there or whatever. Right. Um. I'd get the lure caught in my glove. <laughs> and it was like operating, it was like surgery to get the lure unhooked from my glove. Fortunately, it didn't go into my fingers. Yeah, seriously. Which I have had happen before. <laughs> um, it's not that's not fun. But nope. um, yeah, so there, you know, there was that that made <laughs> it pretty interesting.
1: Catch and release gloves. There you yes, go. Yes,
2: absolutely. And um, but you know, we had a we had a great time. We were only out for a few hours. Hours and mm-hmm. you know when it's that cold, it's you know you can all o- for me, I can only take a few hours. So it's nice um, just to be
1: out there, though, right?
2: Oh gosh, you know there's nothing better than being outdoors on the lake. Um, you you just can't you just can't beat it and. Yeah. And it, you know, there were, there were a lot of boats out there, (laughs) a lot of people out there, but, um, you know, everybody was having a great time and, uh, the Crowley Lake fish camp folks, you know, they just couldn't be nicer and more helpful and Mm -hmm. shout out to Chris on the docks who helped us, uh, you know, get our boat unhooked and launched out and was just wonderful to chat with. And, you know, I just had a great time. I love that lake.
1: And um, I remember opening day of fishing season when I was a kid. You know, it's like elbow to elbow all the way around yeah. that lake, which I think is pretty big. And, in, you know, we we'll re- we remind our listeners, some of you, we've, we've talked about Crowley Lake in the past. It's actually a reservoir. It used to be much smaller, I think, back in the 30s and before it was dammed. And it's kind of where Dave McCoy's first jobs up here was, right. was, was managing that. And, um, it's just out there in this, in that beautiful caldera space. And you look to the southwest and you've got Mount Morrison and over to the west is Mammoth. And then you can just sweep your gaze across the mountains all the way over to the east where you can see the whites and boundary peak, which is actually in Nevada. You're just really out there exposed in a way to the majesty of everything that surrounds us and the magic of the Eastern Sierra.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we, my husband being a geologist as a lot of the listeners know, you know, he, he likes to look at the different terraces and, Oh, wow. You know, this Lake was really, really deep at one point, you mm-hmm. know, um, just looking at the geology that you can see, um, the Lake is not terribly high right now. Right. Um, you know, we'll see what the rest of the, the melt off of the snow It was not a big snow year. So we'll see how high it gets, but, um, we did get to see a golden eagle um, wow. sitting on the rocks at the side of the lake. Um, and that was very cool. The, those birds are so big. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you, you never know what you're going to encounter in nature when you're, when you're out in the eastern Sierra. And that was um, a made the morning really special.
1: Yeah. Right. One of those magical nature moments you get yeah. around here. Sometimes totally. it's a bear and it's not so magical, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you know, you mentioned a bear. We have already had a bear in our yard this, uh, this spring. Oh really? Yes. And we were quite shocked because I don't think we've ever seen a bear this early in the, in the year. Um, but yeah, you just, you never know. They're <laughs> waking up early this season. definitely so listeners uh if you have uh a chance to get up here and do some fishing highly recommend you hit up crawley lake check it out and let us know what you think uh in our comment section so and
1: we'll be right back
0: oxygen a colorless odorless reactive gas the chemical element of atomic number eight and the life-supporting component of the air starved suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast, a colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals.
2: Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the B Books section of the podcast, and this is always our favorite section. Well, we love talking to people, too. I shouldn't say favorite, but we really <laughs> enjoy this section. Um, and this week, we're actually talking about a book that we both read, which we haven't yeah. done in a while, so I'm even more excited to have our conversation today. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about the book, The Boys in the Boat. Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It was written by Daniel James Brown and released in 2013. And we we had planned to read a book about sports in in kind of in the theme that we were talking about the opening of fishing season and I found this bo- this book and I was so excited when Christopher said that he would read it too. Um, I had I was not familiar with this this book. Um, really? It came out quite a while ago, and I had not heard about it. so
1: yeah it was it was a pretty popular book when it came out. A number of uh, people I know had read it and recommended it to me, and when you started reading it, we decided, yeah, let's just go ahead and both. Both chat about
2: it. Yes, and I'm 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 so glad that we did. And so it tells the story of the crew team from the University of Washington um, and their journey, if you will, leading up to their rowing at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. And the the book does it focuses on all of the nine crew boat members as well as their coach um and the the assistant coach and the, the gentleman who builds the boats. Um, and then it it inserts um past sections about what was happening in Germany leading up to the Olympics and everything that Hitler who was just you know had just risen to power and, um, everything that they did to prepare the world to see Germany in 1936 in a way that they wanted the world to see Germany. Right. Um, right. I just thought, I, I was just saying that the, the more I got into this book, this book, the more I liked it and the more excited I got about it, um,
1: you know, what I got out of this book, I got quite a bit. And that's kind of the crux of it right there, right? Mm-hmm. And so that kind of parallel story of this underdog rowing team. Um, and you, the, he tracks them from the beginning when yes. they start rowing at, at University of Washington in Seattle all the way up to the Olympics. And then that parallel drama that's happening on the other side of the Atlantic as, you know, Hitler and the Nazis are just u- planning to use the Olympics to showcase to the world their Aryan first, you know, approach to everything and, right. and everything that was going down at that time. And, but I also love just the human stories and, I, and, you know, I don't know much about cruise or rowing. I had a good friend in, as an undergrad at UC Santa Barbara, who was a coxswain for the UC crew. And I remember she just used to get up at some ungodly hour in the morning and she <laughs> was, she was short and, um, very disciplined and had a loud voice when she needed to. So she probably was perfect for that role. role. Um, and then, you know, we've seen when I lived on the East coast, we would go watch the regattas on the Schuylkill river in Philadelphia and and elsewhere. So, um, you know, it's a beautiful sport to watch, but I had never really appreciated it until I read those book in terms of the discipline and the work that goes into it.
2: Absolutely. It was the same for me. I really didn't know Anything about rowing at all? Um, I mean, I like to use a rowing machine at the gym from time to time, but that's <laughs> that's kind of it. <clears throat> and um, you know, the, I also did not know that how popular of a sport this was back in those times. I mean, their basketball was a brand new sport in 1936. Was the first time of the Olympics had basketball. Mm-hmm. So you know, basketball was brand new. Of course, there there was baseball, but their rowing was the sport that the whole country kind of got into, and I I did not know how popular it was. Um, at that time.
1: Right. It had a a really storied history all the way back into the 1800s and beyond, right? And there were kind of those elite universities in England and then the Mm -hmm. elite universities on the East coast of the States, Harvard and Yale and Cambridge and um that all had their rowing teams, and it was kind right. of an elite thing and and you mentioned rowing machines, and he actually talks about how those yes. became popular because of this right
2: absolutely, yeah, and um you know the other the other piece i I loved about this story is their you know the backstory of all of the guys who rowed in the boat, the boat that ended up going to berlin um all of them had these challenging lives leading up to them arriving at the University of Washington and the the way the author describes how they came together to be successful in the end was was really uh, it was a beautiful story and um you know, it wasn't like they all met and realized they all had these, you know, they all came from these challenges and they bonded immediately. It wasn't like that at all. It took, it took them over the course of four years to understand each other and come together. And, and that was really what it took inevitably for them to be successful.
1: Yeah, totally. And and you talk about that bonding that needed to happen because of their backgrounds. He does do a good job. He focuses on one rower in particular as kind of the focal point of the team. This guy named Joe Rands who right. really had a hard scrabble upbringing. It was the height of the depression. He had a really bad family situation and he was basically kicked out of his home as a teenager and had to learn to live on his own and make his own way and hunt and fish and build and you know, all that stuff and and he he financed his own way through the mm-hmm. University of Washington, um, and he wasn't the only one who had a hard scrabble background. Right. right, this was the mm-hmm. height of the Depression. Seattle, yes. is where the original Skid Row was, it 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 was just right in everyone's faces. And this was an elite sport, and and the author talks about how when they were starting to to test to to join the rowing teams, how some of the richer kids dropped out more quickly than the others because they, they were obviously there for the wrong reasons. They weren't as physically fit and weren't as determined as some of these other young men were.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, um, you know, those, the scenes, uh, you know, describing Joe, you know, how he, he doesn't have enough to eat. Right. And, you know, you can only imagine, you know, this big six foot three inch guy who's expending all these calories rowing, you know, his rowing practices, which were, you know, very difficult going back to his room at the end of the day and, you know, barely having any food.
1: Yeah. And and that's something he revisits multiple times in the story, right? mm -hmm, How he like, he'll be in the mess hall and he'll just eat all of his plate and stuff off other people's plates as well. And how he becomes kind of like a spectacle in a way for some of these other guys, you know, it's kind of almost cruel in a way that, um, what he was going through. But, you know, he points out rowing an Olympic race is an equivalent to playing two basketball games back to back in yes. six minutes and pound for pound Olympic take in as much oxygen as a thoroughbred racehorse. It is hard,
2: it hard, is very hard work very hard and, um, mentally straining. Yeah. You know, they they, they describe that too, how, you know, they would, you know, they had to shut everything else out going on around them. And, you know, you could imagine with, in these big races with all these distractions and all these people on the sides of the lake where they were rowing to, you know, to, cut all of that out, not to mention the boats on either side of you,
1: <laughs> Yeah, um, a
2: lot of, a lot of mental discipline as well.
1: Yeah. You, you couldn't look either way, right? Cause you'd lose your rhythm, you'd lose your balance. And those boats are kind of flimsy when you see them up
2: close. Exactly. And, but I, you know, I, I loved, you know, I just, I thought the author did I think it must be really hard for an author to write a book about events that have already happened where you know the end, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: right? So Mm -hmm. I was so impressed with the way that he described all of the races Mm -hmm. because – I mean, of course, I knew for the majority of the races that they were going to win mm-hmm. because that, they had to get to the Olympics. But still, as I was reading the description of those races, my heart was pounding. <laughs> it just like, you know, I felt the same way when I read Seabiscuit. This book reminded me of, of a cross between Eric Larson's books, mm-hmm. like all of them, mm-hmm. and Seabiscuit. Yeah. It's- <laughs> because it, it was really well-researched. You beautifully researched. It was so exciting to read, even though you knew what the outcome was. And I thought the way that he balanced the pieces about Berlin and what was happening in Germany with, I mean, that, that never overtook the point of the story, which was the boys in the boat.
1: Right. You know, he does, he, in really good classic narrative nonfiction, your comparison to Eric Larson, I totally agree with. It's really well researched and paced. And it it, his races are edge of the seat. And you know he's setting he sets this team up as the underdog team, right? You know, it's poor Joe Rance and his teammates, and then you know, the other thing strike against this team is they're from the West Coast and the East Coast teams don't take them seriously until they've been beaten a few times, you know? Yeah. And then of course they go over to the Olympics and the Germans don't take Americans seriously and you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet they win and they win and they win. And the drama really just is heart pounding as you're turning the pages. Um, And the other thing he points out, he's really good at creating spectacle and the popularity of these races. Thousands and thousands of people would line the lakes in Washington and near Seattle to watch the U-Dubs team, the West Coast teams go, and then they would go to Poughkeepsie in New York to do the Hudson Regatta, which is the other big, you know, kind of races. And just the thousands upon thousands of people that would descend upon Poughkeepsie, New York. And these would be broadcast over radio. This is before ESPN and 24-Hour Sports. These were things that people listened to and I Mm -hmm. didn't realize that, you know, and, and today you can actually walk across the train trestle across the Hudson river in Poughkeepsie. It's a rail trail, but they used to back trains onto the trestle and you could go onto the train and watch the race from above. And, um, I never knew that it, it, it's uh, the Hudson river is a big, beautiful expanse of water right there. And it would have been so cool to watch those things from, from that train trestle, you know, um, but he did again. He just creates drama out of these yes.
2: moments. Um, well, the other the other thing that struck me too was the the part of this the book where they're on, they have to take a an ocean liner right to get to Berlin, and so it's this big you know before cruise ships, <laughs> it mm-hmm. was the cruise ship of the time right, and um you know he describes how they really had, they they almost couldn't get there their, their boat onto the ship. Right. And, but what, what I was amazed by is when they finally arrive in Germany and they're getting off the boat, what that, the spectacle of it, that and then the spectacle of when they're walking into the Olympic arena Right. At the opening of the games. And, and I thought, wow, this must have been the first time that, you know, they had such pomp and circumstance around the opening of the Olympic Games. Because remember, I mean, there was no TV. Right. So it wasn't like this was being broadcast on Wide World of Sports or anything like that. Um, but just for the people in the stadium, they were so. The way it was described was all the athletes and everybody in the stadium was so in awe of this this spectacle, this celebration that the Germans put on when the when the flame erupted and you right. know the Olympic flame. I mean, I. You know, I just I just made a note in the margin like this must have been just so overwhelming, and you know, for these poor kids, many of them had never been you know other than going to the East Coast for their regatta races, they had never been anywhere.
1: Right, right. They were in a place that was, you know, they were in Germany, so, and they were surrounded right? by teams from all these other countries. So languages they didn't understand. Right? They were surrounded by all these throngs of people, the pre-war tensions, the Nazis, you know, with all their swastika flags, you know, Mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine what would be going through an 18 year old's mind at that point in the 1930s. And the other thing is, you know, remember, this was the kind of time when, you know, Joe Lewis, the boxer shortly after these Olympics, you know, uh, 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 knocked out the German yes. champion. And of mm-hmm. course, Jesse Owens at these same Olympics yep. won his race in the face of the Germans as, as this crew team did. Right. right. Know, the, the Aryan ideal put forth by Hitler and the Nazis was just being smacked down right and left yep. um, by the Americans. You yes. Know? And, and the other thing that I liked about this, you mentioned them taking that boat, across the Atlantic to get there in the very next chapter, you know, he leaves the reader kind of in an upbeat mood. These are kids on an adventure. The first time they're going overseas, they're on a boat. And he describes that all in really great detail about some that are seasick and some that aren't, you know, all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And you're kind of laughing and smiling. And in the very next chapter, he's you're set in Berlin and he, the very first lines are, and the Nazis started rounding up the gypsies to clear yes. them out of Berlin, and they were never seen again. Most of them were murdered in camps. The same time these kids are on a boat, this other horrible stuff is happening right. in this city where they're about to go visit, right? And they don't right. really necessarily understand the depth of that at the time.
2: No, no. And nor do they ever get a, get an understanding of that because the Germans had done such a thorough job of cleaning up all right. of their, you know, malintentions, you know, right. all all the signs about Jews not being allowed and, you know, things like that had all been taken down and right. buildings had been cleaned and repaired and flower with flower boxes and you know, the, the whole place was just made to see like this paradise, you right. know, he does, he, I mean, he does describe that saying how the Germans wanted to appear to be, you know, more cosmopolitan than the Italians and better, you know, more easygoing than the Via, the, um, the Viennese people, right, and, right. you know, I mean, he goes through everybody and, um, you know, says how they, they wanted to be better, and be perceived in that way um, correct you know so yeah. these kids who were so naive to the to the outside world um, you know they they just could not get an understanding of that.
1: And you know what's interesting an important tool that, that the Nazis used to create that perception was the very famous filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl. Yes who was a documentaryarian and, and later became a controversial figure because she um uh worked for Hitler in the 30s mm-hmm. and made very famous films including most of the german footage of these olympics is her filmmaking right. um and being right in the moment including on the races here um, mm-hmm. and, and really just, you know, sometimes butting he- heads with Googles and other yes. Nazi officials because she's actually, you know, in places with cameras where they don't want her. Right. But, um, you know, she was part of that propaganda machine that they yes. had and that these Olympics were really going to show the world once and for all that Germany was on top. And it is that final race that they win the gold medal in the German Olympics that I think is the most dramatic race he writes in the book.
2: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. With the, with the, the first rower being so ill and you're not sure if that guy's going to live or die through the course of the race. Um, you know, it definitely the tension and, and that is for, well, it was for me as I was reading this, that was the only race I really didn't know. I didn't know if they were going to win the gold medal or not. I knew they, they obviously went there, but I I didn't know this story. So yeah, it was, I was like, you know, grabbing onto (laughs) (laughs) my sleeve, you know, like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? I, you know, I could barely breathe, but, um, you know, it was just, it was a really great book. And, and then, you know, he goes And, you know, the epilogue tells you what happened, you know, in, in a, in a very summarized way, gives you, you know, what happened after to all of the, the guys in the boat and the coach. Um, and, and that's just so sweet. I cried.
1: Right. Right. He does. He follows them up. You know, they, the team, they succeeded in Berlin and then they continued, they had bonded so much yes. as you spoke about earlier that they continued to get back in reunions every decade until they yep. started dying off. And, um, that was really sweet.
2: Yeah, and, it I mean, it was.
1: The other sweet part about this actually is in the prologue of the book. He actually, the author, uh, Daniel James Brown meets Joe Rands as an old man and he writes about it in the prologue. And he meets him for a completely different reason. He had written something else, and Joe Rands wanted to talk to him about it. And Joe Rands, this was like the early 2000s. He had emphysema. He was dying, living with his daughter. Um, And he almost stumbles across his background by accident. And it was through that initial meeting that he decided to investigate his story, um, which Joe, Joe's own story was very dramatic, you know, his yes. own book. Yeah. Um, but then kind of really understood the power of this, uh, rowing story as well. And so that's kind of, he kind of opens it on that very human note. And then he closes it, as you say, on that very yeah. human note about how each of the guys went on and the lives they lived and the, and the women they married and all that good stuff. It was, right. Uh, Really well done book. And I, as I mentioned before we started talking, I think George Clooney is set to direct the movie adaptation.
2: Well, I can't wait to see that movie. And I, (laughs) I hope it's as good as the book. I hope, I mean, I hope George Clooney does it justice.
1: Oh, I think he will. I hope it just gets done. So, this is The Boys in the Boat Nine Americans and Their Epic Quest for Gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics by Daniel James Brown. Of course, we have it in the library, um, or you can get it online and download it from the library's uh, ebook collection, or of course, find it in a bookstore or where have you. It's a great read. We both recommend it, right, Stace?
2: Highly, yes, please. And if you do read it, let us know what you think.
1: Absolutely. Great choice, Stace.
2: Thanks! Sit tight. (laughs) We'll be right back.
0: You are dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. Just make sure you find us.
2: Welcome back listeners. We are at the conversation part of our podcast and today we are so thrilled to have with us Jeff Simpson, the Economic Development Manager for Mono County joining us. Welcome Jeff.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Yeah, it's um, nice to have a little bit of a weather change. I can definitely tell my mood is changing with the (laughs) <laughs> temperature is rising right now, so it's it's been great.
2: <laughs> oh, that's great. Yes, it is. It's a we're gonna have a beautiful weekend here in Mono County. So we're so happy that you took some time to uh join us today and talk with us. But um so maybe you could start out and telling our listeners how did you get to Mono County? What is your origin story?
3: Yeah, my origin story um was born in Bridgeport, actually. I was one of the last babies. Um, born Ooh. in the hospital oh. here in Bridgeport yep so I uh, was born and raised here in Bridgeport um, uh, my grandparents uh, moved to Bridgeport in 1969 but my great-grandparents actually um, came to the eastern Sierra via Manzanar they were commissioned by uh, the government my great-grandpa couldn't uh, fight in the war so he was commissioned by the government to to go to Manzanar. My, uh, he was uh, the principal of uh, the school there, and my wow. great-grandma was the nurse there at Manzanar. And so my family's kind of been in the Eastern Sierra since the war. And uh, yeah, born and raised in Bridgeport, moved out of here for about 10 years, traveled uh, traveled the world, went to college, and then decided to come back uh, come back to my roots about 10 years ago. So lived in Mammoth for four or five years, uh, and then moved to Colville, and then actually just lost my home in the Mountain View Fire. So we are oh. renting in Topaz right now and uh trying to decide which which town we want to uh uh to either relocate or to to rebuild in Colville right now. Wow. Right. We should
1: we should remind yeah. our listeners the Mountain View Fire came through uh Walker Colville area last year and it would destroyed quite a few homes.
2: Yes. Yeah. Oh, so sorry. I Can't imagine how difficult that must have been. Right.
3: Thank yeah, God was, you were um, all
2: safe. You know, you guys were all safe, though.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. And we we got extremely lucky. Um, we were all out of town at the time of the fire. So uh, my wife, we have two small children. And um, just to be out of town and avoid that entire situation, um, we, we feel lucky about that. And right. on the road yeah. to recovery at this point. So, yeah. yeah moving forward Wow. So wow. tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up
1: in Bridgeport as a kid.
3: Yeah. You know, my dad grew up here and I grew up here. Um, I loved my childhood, uh, in Bridgeports. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it was, we had a small class of about 10 kids and I was the only boy. So I, I grew up <laughs> with nine other girls, which was a little <laughs> difficult, but I had, so I had, I had friends either older or younger than me. I didn't have anyone in my, my class. And then, yeah. um, yeah. you know, as you get older and go to high school, I, 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 I made the daily commute to Colville to go to high school and, um, uh, yeah, just love my childhood here. It was it was safe, it was fun. I love fishing and outdoors. And so uh um yeah, it's it's uh, it was a great place to uh to grow up.
2: And when you went to college, where did did you go to a big school or what was that transition like?
3: Yeah, um I went to UNR uh up in Reno. Um so it wasn't a huge transition, but um you know, coming from a small town, I think I wasn't prepared for even <laughs> just Reno. Um, so there was a little <laughs> bit of a, a little bit of an adjustment there but uh and then um you know I kind of flourished i did some i did a study abroad program and um did some extensive traveling and kind of got out and then um i didn't come back to to the eastern Sierra for a very long time and uh and i didn't didn't think I would ever be back and then got this opportunity here to work for mono county and uh can't believe how much I missed it and, and appreciate it so much more now that i'm an adult yeah especially um, back with with a young family of your own, you can kind of give them the experience that that you had, right? Yeah, absolutely, and and I think you know continuing the tradition of a multi generation, you know, family. We have family all up and down the Eastern Sierra, you know, and Bishop and Lone Pine, and and um, just to just to you know come back to I guess your roots and um, you know raise your children here is, is something special for us.
2: Do That's you? Awesome. What is, what is like the, the biggest difference that you see, you know, through your children from their experience growing up here versus yours?
3: Well, technology, you know, and that's not really, I guess that doesn't really have to do a lot with the Eastern Sierra, but you know, my kids, they, they love to be outside. They love to go fishing. They love to to do hikes. And so I I think that's what resonates with me is I want them to have Mm -hmm. that outdoor experience with nature and um you know just to to raise them in a safe outdoor environment i think is um i think it's something that's special for us and and something that resonates um with our family and 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 that that's why we're here we we want to uh we want to raise our kids in the eastern sierra so that that's why we're here that's awesome. That's
2: awesome. So, tell us a little bit as the economic development manager for Mono County. What what does that job? What do you do for your job, and what does that involve? I know I know part of what you do, but can yeah, you so, tell us more. Um,
3: yeah, we have a small department, just uh, three of us, um, and we run kind of four different branches uh, for the county here. We do. Uh, we run Mono County Tourism, which I'm sure all of you have seen, maybe us on Facebook or through our visitor guides. It's it's tourism promotion, much like uh, Visit Mammoth, except we're really just promoting the unincorporated areas, the small towns throughout Mono County. Right. Uh, the other asset is um, economic development, so business retention, expansion, and attraction. Uh, we're trying to grow businesses that are already here um, and expand them and retain the ones that we have, but also looking to diversify our economy and bring in new businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, are the film commission for the county. So, um, uh, Alicia, my colleague is the film commissioner. So we recruit films, commercials, uh, feature films, uh, you know, indie films, all of those things. Uh, they, they work through our office, um, uh, to secure a location and come here. And then the last, um, kind of branch is the, um, fish and wildlife. I run the Mono County Fish and Wildlife Commission. So we stock fish, we talk about fish issues and wildlife issues and, uh, and address those as needed.
1: Can you talk a little bit about, you know, fishing season just opened and Stacey and I just chatted about Fishmas. You know, a lot of people travel to the Eastern Sierra for fishing season, right? We've seen them all over the highways and and everywhere now. Um, and I think a lot of them probably already know this, but I don't think a lot of our listeners understand just how much fish stocking goes on around here and how it's, there's a long storied history of stocking fish in the Eastern Sierra. Can you talk talk just a little bit about that?
3: Sure. Yeah. So I know the county has been spending, you know, county tax dollars on fish stocking since the '80s. Uh, We spend a hundred thousand dollars each year um, stocking fish uh, through eighteen to twenty-two different bodies of water throughout Mono County. Um, Our fish provider is from Desert Springs, Oregon. They come down on a truck, and uh, um, you know, every year we decide how many where we're going to put them and what size we're going to purchase. So. For the rivers, we buy the smaller kind of one-pound fish. And then for the bigger lakes, we kind of buy the three- to five-pound range. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh Uh, town
3: of Mammoth stocks another $100,000 worth of fish in in the the Mammoth Lakes Basin. And then a lot of the private resorts and marina operators buy fish, um, for their, their individual lake or body of water. So places like Convict Lake Resort or, or every, every lake on the June Lake loop, um, there's a nonprofit up here in Bridgeport that their entire mission is just to raise funds to buy fish for anglers. So, um, wow. it's been an active, um, uh, you know, uh, effort for 30, 40 years now. And, um, there's a lot of money that's invested and a lot of time that's spent raising money to, to buy fish to, uh, for tourists to catch.
1: I think it's amazing. I just remember all the family stories of you know people find, <laughs> seeing the fish stock truck on the highway and then following them up to wherever they would go so they get the first crack.
3: Um, yeah, that's why we keep that, <laughs> that stocking schedule semi-private. I let the marina <laughs> operators know when that truck is coming, but not the tourists. They they stock those trucks and uh, follow them up and try and catch them as they're coming out of the truck. So we try to keep that semi-private. <laughs>
1: Now, we were talking just a little bit before we started recording that you actually, part of your role is actually to talk all this stuff up, talk Mono County up to people externally as well. So like you get to go to the fishing shows and what have you. Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, we do a number of fishing shows, um, you know, throughout kind of California, but the biggest, as we mentioned was, um, the Fred Hall fishing show in Long Beach. It's the biggest in the world. And, uh, it's four or five days, five days of just talking fish in Long Beach, um, and these are our visitors. These are the people that come up, generations, um, to come up here and fish. And just listening to their stories or, you know, they've been going to X and X Lake for, for you know, 40 years with their family. And they learned how to fish here and their grandpa fished here. And just those stories yeah. is, is really awesome to hear and talk about.
2: <clears throat> yeah. I Well, that was where I met you for the first time, Jeff, was at the Fred Hall Show in Del Mar. <laughs> and, of all places. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it is, it's, it's great how, um, this area is so generational and, you know, it's like people pass it on to their, their kids and their grandchildren and, um, you know, and it just, because it's so, it's such a beautiful place. It's so magical that people keep coming and that's, that's a great thing. What else, what else is the County doing right now to attract new visitors in the you know kind of in the wake of COVID and
3: yeah you know it's an interesting time um there's kind of multi-you know, layered approach here for us you know we don't have international visitors everything's domestic drive markets um we have a little bit of a of uh issue a dispersed camping issue and so uh, mm-hmm. It's a little bit of us promoting the shoulder season. So we're pushing hard right now in the unincorporated yeah. areas because it's very slow. We have um, mm-hmm. hotels that are unoccupied. We have spaces that are open that no one's camping in. So we're, we're pushing hard now, but as we transition into the summer months when we're um, at capacity or even over capacity, you know, our messaging will change to um, educational sustainability, best practices um, mm-hmm. and, and trying to make sure that that tourism is spread out um throughout the year the times that we need it and not just so focused and funneled into the busy holiday summer weekends
2: it it does seem like the shoulder seasons here I mean I've been here 19 years now and it does seem like the shoulder seasons are kind of collapsing that there does seem like there's more of a year-round presence of tourists here is that is that true in fact or does it just look like that
3: you know, um, it's, it's hard to tell over the last few years with, um, with, uh, just with COVID and everything that's mm-hmm. going on. I know that we have been spending, you know, our money in the shoulder seasons as, as much as possible, promoting the fall colors in the fall, um, pushing, you know, the waterfalls and the wildflowers in the spring and trying mm-hmm. to out you know, those shoulder seasons as much as possible. We've had have some success and it has been growing over the last, uh, the last ten years, I'd say, but um, this this last year and a half is just really hard to tell with COVID. There's just so many anomalies that yeah. are happening. Um, well, it's hard to see what that trend line will look like in the next few years.
2: Right. Yeah. It will. It will be interesting to see as things start opening up this fall what what that brings. Yes for sure. Can you
1: talk a little bit, because I know you mentioned part of your role is economic development too. And Stace and I on this podcast have had the pleasure of chatting with some numerous new small businesses, like, you know, the Walker Coffee Company, Growler's Mm -hmm. Eatery right there in Bridgeport, you know, there's a new diner down in Chalfont, Um, you know, is, and of course, June Lake had, has seemed to have attracted a lot of new small businesses in recent years. And, the pandemic may have affected a lot of this, but is there like a new generation of people coming to the area to open small businesses? Because that's kind of the the sense that I'm getting.
3: Absolutely, I, I would agree with that, and and it's it's younger people. I would say it's it's um you know there mm-hmm. might be this um, switch over to people moving back to the rural areas, but even before COVID, we we're seeing um we're seeing young uh, young families move back. We're seeing um, a lot of new businesses pop up. Um, A lot of vacant businesses that have been vacant for decades um, being reopened. And so Mm -hmm. it's nice to see a little bit of that uh, revitalization, especially up here in North County, where we don't have a lot of economic development happening. We don't have a lot of new construction happening. And so just to see that trend is really encouraging. Um, You know, our schools are filling up a little bit more up here. Uh, So all of those things um, uh, certainly help. That's great. Are
2: are you also seeing an increase in people coming, you know, moving up here in this, you know, you mentioned technology is widely available here. So are you seeing a kind of a, you know, people moving up here because they can't, because they can work from home because of technology?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, digital 395, I think was a game changer Mm -hmm. for this entire region. So we see a lot more people working from home or just working remotely in general. Mm -hmm. Um, people, you know, in their vans coming up and can kind of, um, you know, camp up and down 395 and work throughout the summer. Um, and then we've seen, you know, some technology companies move here. If you know of, um, uh, Insane Audio and June Lake, um, you know, that's a big company that has, um, uh, manufacturing overseas and distribution channels, um, that had a main office in Seattle that, that uh, decided to relocate to June Lake because of solely because of um, of gigabyte access and wow. uh, and their lifestyle. So uh, they generated I think four or five um, full time year round uh, positions there in June Lake, and um, they're manufacturing uh, audio equipment for Jeeps and and distribute them through June Lake, and and it's just a huge success story.
2: Oh, that's awesome! That's, that's really really exciting. Um, so we've talked about work um you know probably you're probably one of our guests that know this area better than anybody so what do you like to do in your free time
3: oh
1: gosh we don't, you just... don't
2: have to share any any fishing secrets it's okay
3: <laughs> yeah i know i'm not gonna tell you my fishing for sure no yeah no i love um i love i really love well i grew up fishing here and so i love fishing but I, my real passion right now and it's been the past decade is hiking mm. i really uh really enjoy hiking i started that uh eastern sierra backpacking uh hiking and backpacking group on on facebook and uh really just enjoy getting outside and, and rediscovering the area because I, I didn't grow up yeah. hiking i grew up fishing and so okay. just um discovering these trails again um is my passion so uh yeah hiking the john Muir trail and the tahoe rim trail this this summer and uh, or sections of it i should say and uh, just discovering um all these new places again uh, is really you, what i love doing
2: do you do more backpacking or day hikes
3: uh both. Uh do multi-day backpacking and um a lot of day hiking as well.
2: Nice. Do you have a favorite destination these days that you love to go to?
3: You know, um I'd love discovering some of these lesser-known trails up here in North County because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you just have zero people on trail. Um, you know, and, and the scenery is awesome. Uh but I think my favorite my favorite trail right now is uh is the PCT southbound off of Sonora Pass and then looping back round uh, right. off Levitt right. Lake? Um, it's a really, really great section that's kind of different than any other part of the Sierra. Um, so it's it's a it's a really neat section mm-hmm. if you have the time to hike it.
2: Oh, very! I, Levitt Lake is one of the places I'm hoping to hike to this this summer. This summer, yeah. right. I have this not month, gotten yes. there yet, so. Um. And Very for our,
1: cool. Our listeners, that's over near the Marine Warfare Training Center, where we've we've right. been before on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, out in that direction. Awesome. So,
2: so, Jeff, one we always ask our readers or our listeners, <laughs> what are you reading now?
3: What am I reading? So I have I have two kind of books that I'm I'm reading right now. One is um, Backpacker Long Trails, and it's it's um, just a book about mastering, I guess. Um, the through hike, and so I'd, I'd love to hike the PCT at some point in my life. So I'm kind of doing some mm. research on that. So I'm reading, I'm reading that book, and then the other one I'm reading is um, called Extreme Ownership. Uh, it was written by a U.S. Navy SEAL, and uh, it's really just about taking ownership of your life and, and your routine and your regimen. Um, this this marine uh, wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning, gets his day started, and just talks about um, leadership through um, his training, uh, with the U S Navy, uh, Navy SEALs.
1: Wow. Yeah. That book came out, I think maybe three, four, five years ago. I think that's, it's Leif Babin is the author. If I remember correctly. Yeah. That's a, that's a great book.
3: Good. I'm glad, I'm glad you've, uh, yeah. Leif and, uh, Jocko. Right, right,
1: right, right, right. There's two people. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll post those links on the website. Yeah, definitely. Awesome.
2: Are you are you more in general? Are you more of a nonfiction guy? Yeah, I'm like
3: a self help um, <laughs> type reader, like um, and and uh, or or, or self interest, I guess. Yeah. So so uh, that's kind of what I tend to read.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I would love to be able to through hike. Or through, I may be getting too old to do that. But, um, uh, no, <laughs> but you know, then I go and I read these books by people who, do, who, um, uh, oh my gosh, his name escapes me now, and I'll, I'll remember it right afterwards. But it's kind of hiking the Appalachian Trail, um, and just all the hijinks and mistakes he makes along the way. You know, and yeah. I think, oh boy, you know, you really do have to be prepared, not just logistically, but psychologically,
3: to make it from one end to the other.
1: Right? Yeah, that's, that's
3: what I've been hearing. The mental part is is equally as challenging.
2: How long would it? Do you think it would take you to do something like that?
3: For the PCT, I'm, I, I would think it would take me five months. Um, yeah. So you know, and I have small children, so it's it's something that right. I'm hoping to do um, eventually when I retire, if, if I can stay in shape. That's the goal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> is your is your wife um, as as avid a hiker as you are?
3: She does not hike at all, so I'm usually <laughs> going solo or taking the kids with me. Um, she's really into yoga and some other. Okay. types of things that I don't do at all. So um we have different hobbies <laughs> when it, when it comes to that, but uh yeah. That's okay,
1: right?
2: Yep. That's right.
3: <laughs>
1: Very right. cool. Well, thanks thanks Jeff for joining us. We learned a lot today. Yes, thank you so lot much.
3: Too. Yeah, thanks so much guys. I appreciate appreciate the offer.
1: And listeners, we hope you, if you're not already in the Eastern Sierra, you're making your plans to responsibly and safely come up and visit us um, as the weather has turned nice. And um, we look forward to seeing you this summer. And you've got a great website to go to, Mono County Tourism, to give you some ideas of of just where you can find your own hidden fishing corners. In the meantime, grab a book um, and enjoy the better weather, and we will welcome you back at our next episode. In the meantime, you can find us at our Instagram, o 2 Starved, and also Facebook at the same handle and at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you, hear what you're reading or hear what you'd like us to read in next episodes. Right, Stace?
2: That's right. Thanks so much. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Starved. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.